1: Welcome to 3, a show about Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic, and part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Gil Gross with Joel Drucker and Amy Lundy. Novak Djokovic has his first title of 2022 at last. It comes in Rome, and he beat Stefano Tsitsipas in the final in a rematch of last year's Roland Garros final. Second straight year they played in Rome as well, and it continues the trend that we have been highlighting throughout, which is Djokovic getting better and better throughout this clay court season. Uh Joel, what were your thoughts on that final against Tsitsipas? Uh, blowout in the first set, six love, very tight in the second with a seven six.
0: Yeah, but then he uh, he got out just in time. I mean, that was a good a good effort. That's that's one of those strange scores that you don't want to have to play too many matches by because of the momentum and all the other factors. And I thought it was a look how much progress Novak has made in the last few weeks. We've seen it right in front of us and we've seen how much better he's playing. It was very impressive and how um, I ask a lot of players, i asked a lot of players, what makes the super greats so much better than all the other players? And they, they have something that they do that kind of can shift the momentum or arrest it. and Novak, this thing with Novak and tiebreakers, I mean, this is a whole study. This is a study about errors and consistency and depth. I mean, it's a, It's a pretty much a master course he puts on in his way of winning tiebreaks.
2: I thought Tsitsipas came out really tight. And Joel, the comment you made in our last podcast about scar tissue, I thought that was really appropriate because he seemed nervous. He seemed like the last thing in the world he wanted to do was play Djokovic. He got a couple of bad bounces on the clay in like the first or second game. And it was like, it was almost as if he got it in his head that this is not going to be my my day or my set. I thought Novak did a great job attacking the Tsitsipas backhand, which other players had not done as effectively. And it broke down. He coughed up a lot of errors. Um, And then Tsitsipas found his rhythm and had an opportunity to serve for the second set. And once again, Novak persisted and um, forced a lot of errors. Uh, There were a couple of articles that were written on Novak's backhand, which was quite good to me, just from the eyeball test. not really looking at any stats. I thought the forehand was amazing yesterday. And, um, you know, if if you um, give Novak Djokovic an opening, he's going to take a tractor and ram right through that.
1: Yeah, uh, the forehand was the key for me because he, in the first two sets at the French, and by the way, I actually probably give Novak a bit more credit. Uh, early in that match, I thought the first three games, nothing Tsitsipas really could have done. And it was 40-15 uh, where he was serving at at 2 Love, trying to just get on the board and get into the match. And he was up and he, hits a, he makes a first serve. Has an easy forehand. Djokovic knows exactly where it's going to go. Reads it like a book and and hits a winner on the kind of the counter attack with Tsitsipas out of position, thinking that he was going to end the points on his terms. Djokovic hits a winner. Uh, 40-30, another great first serve by Tsitsipas, or at least he lands it and hits his spot. Djokovic again gets it back. Tsitsipas has a midcourt forehand approach shot. Djokovic anticipates cross-court pass on the back end. He knew where he was going again. It's two forehands that it wasn't just movement. It was Djokovic read him. And I thought that just broke Steph's spirit right there. I was up 40-15. I did exactly what I was supposed to do. And Novak hit two winners. Um, And then, yeah, I think it was a runaway train from there. He gave up. He was down two breaks. Um, But in terms of the forehand... Forehand to forehand, Djokovic was losing that battle. First two sets at the French, when he went down two sets to love in the final. He wasn't losing that yesterday. Hmm. He was hitting just as big. He was hitting deep. He was hitting with quality. And if you can go to Tsitsipas's forehand without getting hurt, now you open up the backhand corner, right? Ge- geometrically, that's what happens.
0: Well, the better player reveals the weaker player's limitations and weaknesses, and you see, I mean, Vest, I think he's, he's having a little bit of a tennis identity crisis because now he's, he's come up against some of the greats repeatedly and shown his stuff. And now he's kind of think, well, gee, unless I get this backhand a lot better, particularly learn how to slice it effectively, now he's going to have to do more with his forehand. And then when everything gets out of whack that way, bad things can happen. And it's, it's fascinating to me, it's fascinating to me to watch in Rome to see, here's Novak chugging along, and then you see uh, Zverev and Tsitsipas. Alcaraz is not there, but Alcaraz has made Tsitsipas and Zverev look to me a little bit like yesterday's news. We talked about this before. Like, I'm not saying they're not contenders. I'm just saying that the you know, the electric qualities that Alcaraz is bringing are something different. Tsitsipas and Zverev have kind of seen, oh, oh, this is how good I is this how good I can really be.
2: And I would put FAA in that category because he had a really great tournament and played a great match against Novak. But I know that some of the scouting on how to potentially beat Novak is to keep the ball deep to the middle so that he cannot open up the court and find angles. And I saw Poss trying to do that in spots, but he looked unsure. And the balls that he was hitting straight up the middle, hard and deep, didn't really have um, the commitment that his cross court forehand or cross court backhand had. So um, he just looks unsure. And Djokovic seems to have learned a lot from last year's French Open final. And Tsitsipas seems as confused as ever. So he's got some work to do in uh, the next week. And uh, he had a, a tremendous clay court season, but um, it's not even close at this particular point in time. But that doesn't mean he can't gather himself. It's just the greatness of Djokovic is still very much in play here.
0: Well, I don't think C Surprise conceives of tennis as something you have to kind of tactically adjust to. I think for him, it's, it's about being expressive and hitting sh- cross-court shots and big forehands and angles and coming to net. So if you told him, all right. Here's what you got to do. You got to kind of you know, slice down the middle to his forehand. Keep it down the middle. Wait for your thing. Jockey thrust. I mean, and in, in an odd way, because of the way he plays, Zverev might be more equipped to do that in his own way because he's he's not as uh, much seeing tennis as creation the way he sees passes. So, as for someone who's used to you know lashing balls out to corners and making athletic plays, now now you're turning into kind of like a, a bowling alley proceeds to pass. And that, you know, Novak is completely comfortable in all of that. He, he understands all those corners of the game that way, but I think Stefanos, I'm not quite sure if he's ready for that kind of cognitive shift.
2: Well, I know that he does use data. He does have um, someone on his team or actually a couple of people on his team that, that do advanced scouting for him, but um, to what degree that is integrated into his overall approach who knows? Maybe you have a point like he's just he's a little more like Shapovalov right now than he is like Novak.
0: That's right. I'd, I'd, I'd rather
1: give him more credit though. I mean he he problem solved in the second set he all of the serves in the first set went to Djokovic's forehand. Novak was demolishing them. He was eating them for breakfast. Tsitsipas might as well in the first set have started the point with the hand feed the way Novak was returning. <laughs> but in the second set he starts going to the backhand and hitting more kick and it, he actually serves really, really well. And then, you know, the second part of this is he served for the match when they played last year in Rome, he was up two sets to love in the French final last year. Um, and, you know, this one was a little bit more lopsided, but uh, he's losing. He's lost, I think all four meetings to, to Novak on play, but, but I don't think, He's getting. Uh, I don't know that it's not close. I just think he's not there.
2: Yeah. I, so I just will throw this in. This is like I talked to a, a coach the other day that was giving me his opinion on CC Pass, and he said that the one big thing that he sees with Cici Pass on on his serve, which to my eye is excellent and statistically it's excellent, but he says that Steph leans to the left. So that when he's yeah. done with his serve, he's in an awkward position, particularly to find the forehand. I mean, Steph does great with the plus one forehand, but I, it, that was just an interesting comment from a, a high level coach.
0: I like that comment. And I, I think, I think it's a result of the toss. I mean, because the, you know, the most is going to carry him to his left anyway. It's going to he's going to go, the rack is going to go across the body that way, but it's not as organized as let's say uh Fedor or Djokovic. And so the ability to spring to that side, obviously he wants to play the forehands and, and the toss seems to get him a little, it's a little strange sometimes with that motion. I mean, it doesn't mean he doesn't serve well. It doesn't mean, but maybe it has to do with the points. And again, it's so such thin margins, so subtle at that high, high level. Mm -hmm.
1: It it used to be worse. He used to go off to the left more than, than he does now. And now, now uh, it's still there. Uh, It's also interesting though, because I've, I've heard others and I don't, I don't, um, you know, I'm like, like you, Amy, and, you know, to a certain extent, I, when I need to know anything about technique, I go to other people. Um, mm-hmm. I know people who have said, uh, Titsipas is exposed down the line or, you know, to his forehand side, but it actually helps him get forehands because he falls to his left.
2: Yeah. You're springing that way, but right. I don't know. i have to almost like go out on a court and intentionally fall to the left to try to figure it out because
0: allowing him to get more inside out
1: forehands if you watch his split step after his serve it's always like on the deuce side he's split stepping on his backhand side because that's where that's where he goes after he serves and and I think that's actually a good thing he wants to he kind of kind of wants to be there unless someone's going to hit a good return down the line and he's going to struggle to return uh cover it
2: Hmm. Okay. So so Joel, you're saying that you think his we've kind of gone off the rails yeah, here, but that's okay. Right. That's what we do on this podcast. have
0: got a little off balance. Uh, like uh,
2: so yeah. So Joel, are you saying that his toss is a little bit more over his head? I think, think it's a little
0: more than over his head. I think it's a a little like eleven o'clock or ten forty five.
2: Behind, behind uh, him.
0: And it's and it's one thing when you do it as a kick serves a certain volley, but I think it also it it gives him when I watch him serve and finish his serve, he seems to be landing off balance, regardless of where the step is. It's not like, it's not intentionally as opposed to you watch someone like Novak when he finishes his serve, regardless of where his toss is, he's kind of where he he's balanced. And then he can and When the more balanced you are. And again, we're talking split second adjustments with the split second mm-hmm. adjustment, being able to make a forehand that run and cover forehand that you can then hit a foot inside the baseline compared to, two feet inside the baseline. And at that level, it makes a big difference.
2: I like so, your word organized. That's like one of my favorite words in tennis, because it, it can be like, if, if you're ever out on the tennis court where, you know, you're just diving for a ball or something and you're a hot mess, your body is not organized. You know, right. that's a great word.
1: Yeah. Still the big, uh, whole to me is just the backhand side and how it can be attacked both uh, with its defensive shortcomings which I think Djokovic definitely exposed in in this match when it comes to going there with pace and taking time away and how does it react when it's when he's on the run and when he's rushed and you know also just in in neutral trading the consistency and the solidness and uh, Tsitsipas made three unforced errors on the backhand in the tie break and Novak was tight. And that is where I would be critical of Pass because I think Djokovic played a great match, first set, second set. Tie break, Steph's gotta be better because Novak was tight. He was pushing to the backhand and he wasn't doing that all match. That was not his tactic. That was, I'm too nervous to go to the forehand, you know, with enough- yeah,
0: but you know, it's like, why not? And what Tsitsipas doesn't know how to do is how to use a backhand. Like again, the backhand slice technique for a player yeah. that good is not particularly good slice technique, and so he doesn't right. know how to use it to, to generate whether it's, whether it's neutral or, or or get get Novak to hit the ball less hard. All the things that a slice backhand can accomplish. I can think of about you know ten former pros who, have spent a week with that guy, he'd learn a little bit more about the technique of how to how to move through instead of kind of hack at it Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices.
2: Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and member FDSE.
1: Enquist has made some strides, I think, and I, I haven't seen him in a bit, but I think the slice immediately got better once he got some new advice on the technique. It, it is weird, though, for a top five player, it, it feels like he's been getting the wrong advice on the technique of his backhand slice for a lot of years now, which is kind of crazy.
0: Well, I think he got, I think he enjoyed lashing and crashing and angles and driving and whipping. And look, guys won Monte Carlo two years in a row. Been to the French Open finals. Gone pretty good.
2: Yeah. And sometimes, I mean, hack is is not a fun word, but sometimes you do want to carve it a little bit more, or sometimes you're you're going for something shorter or something like that. And it, it may be like what we were talking about before, that he's just more of an expressor or a feeler. And it may be that it's not that he's trying to flout the advice or that he's gotten bad advice. It may just be that it hasn't come to him yet, that particular shot. But these guys are all very dynamic and they're capable of making the changes.
0: I think for every player, there are certain shots that they have to figure out, that have to understand what they're meant to accomplish for them. And I think for certain players, a shot can be perceived. Well, oh, wow, isn't that just defense? Am I defense? Am I not doing what I should be doing? And then, and I think the player has to have the, epiphany working with the coach or whoever else to see oh I see this sequence can work for me doing it this way like Yvonne Lendl had a chip and a drive early in his career but he hadn't learned to make the chip quite as effective as he needed to and then once he did he started to have much better results against his lefty opponents Connors and McEnroe so it's just a question of how you see how that works and maybe if CTS plays a match with versus Novak and sees how it gains some traction rallies We'll see it because it is kinesthetic. You know, it can't just be abstract. In the meantime, look, he's beating 97% of the people he plays. Yeah.
1: yeah. I mean, look, the, the top backhand can be better too. The drive can be better too. Um, there's there's no doubt about that for me. I mean, I just think from just – and also getting some information from Jim Courier when he was commentating in Australia about how Stefanos has taught the slice and just the, the technical philosophy that he has been – um, given as a, as a young player, which is from Apostolos, and I've also seen the practice sessions in person. And that he's been workshopping that shot vigorously for two years. I have mm. seen that. There has been no neglecting of Slice. There has been no lack of desire for that to be better. I just think he hasn't had the right teacher until he let Thomas Enquist in the garage and it got immediately better. That's uh, kind of my read on the situation.
0: Well, also, you know, I think people, and I've just thought of Justine Anna as an example. When you learn the drive one-hander on clay, you have the extreme Eastern grip, like Stan Wawrinka, like Justine, mm-hmm. and you can really get over and you can then get significant racket head speed on top spin drive. So then, but to get the, the slice, you could want to get a little more continental and, and have it sort of mildly transitional. Like the way people learn to hit the slice and drive on faster courts and that's how i was taught it i mean and you know Gil from when we've played How the other i mean i'm guys i'm a recreational player so i'm not gonna overcook this but i think people who learn to play a one-hander on faster courts they might not be as dialed into the extreme eastern grip you know the extreme you see how far over he gets on that backhand i know this is very mm-hmm. crunchy tennis stuff but you see he gets way over on that and that becomes it's harder to, to see and deploy the slice from there.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, good point.
0: Okay, three, a show about the USPTA backhand <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: I'd Joel. fail that test.
1: <laughs> yeah. uh, quickly circling back to something you led with, which is the tie break for, for Novak. And I mentioned Tsitsipas missed the three neutral backhands that I thought were pretty unacceptable misses uh, at the time. But um, it was another example of, of Novak refusing to, to make an unforced error. And he didn't in the tie break. He made one actually on the forehand, but uh, didn't make a lot of mistakes, even though he was super tight. I just pulled up the numbers after you said it. Uh, Djokovic was 19 and two in tie breaks in 2021. Wow. Wow. Isn't that insane? And yes. now he's, he's only four and four this year, but now he's on, he's on a two tiebreak win streak. He won both of them that he played in rome
0: 19 and 2 in 2021 i mean that is just and of course we'll always remember the three he won versus Federer when he won the wimbledon final i mean that's yeah. just uh and there's something i mean that's a real learning it's not saying that's how everybody should play tie breaks but it's certainly the way he knows he can he should play tie breaks and that's that says a lot about novak i mean that says a lot of what makes him so so great and when you think of the topic like uh great players and when you'd want to play for the fate of the earth. I mean, I've often had people like Nadal, Pantra Gonzalez, Jimmy Connors, but boy, Novak, make a case for Novak.
2: That must terrify. If, if anyone thinks about that, any one of his opponents or if they get wind of it, that is the last statistic that you want to know going into (laughs) to play Novak. Like, what can I do to avoid a tie break? And if I do have to go to a tie break, this guy is so money. I mean, if you could choose one particular superpower to have in tennis ability, amazing ability and tie breaks would have to top the list. I mean, that is an unbelievable statistic.
0: Yeah. That's remarkable.
1: It goes back to something we discussed a ton throughout 2021, which is, ability to play as well as you possibly can and better than your opponent ideally with nerves and pressure. That's just what I think he's so good at. It's handling the nerves and pressure. I think the best of, of our three, but speaking of, speaking of the matter, Amy, uh, you wrote a piece about Djokovic potentially having an opportunity to cement his legacy as potentially the second best clay court player of all time with more results, right? So yes. he's not there yet, but you right. think he has the opportunity to do that.
2: <laughs> you actually had to click through and read the article to, to catch that. I actually didn't put him at two dot 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 yet. Um, but there was, you know, it blew up on Twitter, and, and people are arguing about it, and then, and the headline is, um, is he the second best ever? Question mark. And and I just take you through some numbers briefly. Um, obviously, Bjorn Borg has more Roland Garros titles, he's got a better winning percentage on clay, and he's got more clay court titles. And and oh, by the way, uh, there's no argument about number one. I mean, pretty much all of Rafa's accomplishments on clay just absolutely dwarf anybody else's. So put that aside, Rafa's number one, and nobody's going to catch him, at least probably not in our lifetime. Um so that leaves, you know, who is number two. And, and the interesting thing about Borg is that he retired early. So he's got this supreme body of work in a very short amount of time. Well, that, you know, to me, because I know how hard tennis is, and I know the grind, that's actually maybe a mark against him. Because Novak has had to rally himself from these lulls and motivation and yet he continues to do it and he continues to play into his mid-30s and i think that says something for him
0: i agree with that i like that i guess because i'm a, um i'm a little bit more of a haired than a tortoise and i like the longevity approach i mean borg played Roland Garros eight times but he did win at the six of the eight times he played it and uh but he he last played it. the last time he played it was the the month he turned 25 and here's Novak, who's just turning thirty-five uh, next week, and uh, Novak's played fifteen times already. Now, the way I look at the the rankings, because I don't like to list, I like to triage. So I mm-hmm. put the at the A plus clay guys, I will put Nadal and Borg. I'll put them as kind of the A plus grouping, and then there are a whole bunch of As. And one of the things I think that's interesting in clay court tennis, Borg kind of revolutionized clay court towards tennis. There weren't really as many clay court specialists until Borg came around with the, which is sort of the ancestor of today's game. The the Western forehand, the two-handed backhand, heavy emphasis on topspin. And then a lot of the people who won Roland Garros, that was the slam they won. Thomas Muster, Albert Costa, uh, Querton who won it three times. That was Michael Chang, uh, Juan Carlos Ferreira. That was the slam they won. And so it was kind of like narrow casting. And then the game changed Nadal and Federer. it's like, oh, the clay guy is kind of an all court guy. The clay guy wins other other slams now too. So I think with Novak, my thinking after I read your article, Amy, I thought, how does Novak get to the A plus group? And to me, this is the number. When you win four, if he wins four titles at Roland Garros, that put four titles along with the many finals he's reached. I lost track of how many finals he's reached. That's a pretty darn good clay, and that vaults him past some of the the three time RG winners such as. um, Lendl, uh, Mats Zvielander, uh, Quartin. So that's how I kind of see it for Novak. And that's, and that's possible. I mean, that's, that's within reach. I mean, it's funny, to, you know, he's, of our three, Novak appears the most physically indestructible, younger. For sure. And, yes. And so more likely to have more, more looks at that tournament. So to me, putting Novak in the A-plus uh, Roland Garros guys is, yeah, get to four, win four. Three, not sure. And then we'll see what the rest of the career is, but four, four pretty darn good. What what are your thoughts around all this?
1: I, I like that number. I like the four. My thoughts though, I keep thinking about what it means to be successful on clay nowadays with surface speed homogenization with, you know, primarily baseline tennis and the modern game. I'm, I'm someone who's some, you know, I minimize, I guess, a little bit the difference between the surfaces in the sense that I think a great player today is going to be very, you know, is going to be great on all three surfaces. I, and, and that's, you know, something that I was saying going into Roland Garros last year with Daniil Medvedev, which I think is the best way to kind of understand my, my viewpoint on it. Uh, Medvedev, you know how I feel he wasn't competing on clay because he was he was upset throughout the clay court season about the prospect of playing on it. But if he actually tries and puts his mind to it, I think he's a top 10 clay court player. Well, he's a top, you know, let's say three player player forget surfaces top three player. So clay, OK, it might bump him down to OK, maybe he's the sixth best in the world besides uh behind Svera. And and Titi and let's say Alcaraz and it all, right? But Medvedev, is he good on clay? That's a weird question. No, right? The, your instinct is to instinct is to say no. Bad on clay. Probably the sixth or seventh best clay court player in the world. <laughs> so I uh I think it's important to kind of look at Djokovic as a clay quarter as well. He... His game is going to work, the same game that he plays, it's going to work on all the surfaces. Borg didn't have that. And I think that's the difference kind
0: whoa, of. Whoa, whoa. You mean right? outside of five Wimbledons?
1: Well, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying Borg had to change, right? Wasn't that so amazing about what Borg was doing as he was that's playing true. a completely no, different style? You're
0: getting Borg. Well, yeah, the game, the surfaces were a lot less homogenous. The clay was a lot slower and the grass was a lot faster. You're right. And, and I'm not
1: saying that makes Borg better. I'm just saying it makes it different.
0: It's different. That's always, that's what's interesting. And that's what's kind of, you know, my, and again, I say the thing about the four and I say the thing about the A plus, and that's kind of like my way of kind of wedging into the acceptance of the quantitative data as an evaluation of players, because then it's so, it's so tricky. And a lot of players weren't playing the French then. I mean, Connor skipped the French, didn't play the French open five times at the height of his career. And there are many reasons for that, that I won't get into now, but yeah, the surfaces And, and the commitment of players and also, and also to look at the slam tally, the engagement of players, let's say prior to 1988 with the Australian Open was a lot less. I think Borg played the singles there once in Australia. So, so the chance to have these uh, at bats. So I think this, the numeric tally, I'm going to always look, how do we synthesize quantitative with qualitative. So we're getting some insight here.
2: Exactly. And, um, I I will go ahead and tell you that I, in my opinion, Novak's not there yet. So Borg is still number two. So please keep that in mind. Um, But I did want to just present a couple of food for thought type of arguments. And uh, on the Twitter discussion, our friend Owen, um, who writes uh, for Popcorn Tennis, I think, which is a really fun blog, um, he tweeted, Borg's competition just does not have the same Shine to it and and owen actually posted some of the brackets and you know joel even you would be hard pressed to, to remember some of these people and that's you know that's oh, saying a lot great. so then so then owen tweets owen retweets, tweets no disrespect to victor Petchi senior but he is not exactly nadal and and the 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 thing that makes a point in novak's favor is that he has had to play nadal in his prime and um, he is the guy who's beaten a doll eight times on clay including twice at roland garros so that that is just a little tick in his favor um as, as we continue to watch novak throughout his career
0: i'm gonna i'm gonna take i'm gonna tell owen i'm gonna say hey wait a sec you know it's like i, I don't like it's funny it's an interesting thing that happens in the evaluation of players we got the ones for the slam guys, and then when we want to make our case for them versus today, we 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 then well see Borg was playing McEnroe and Connors, and look, and Rafa was beating you know um, Del Del Puerta in the in the finals. So it's always this kind of like reverse history. Borg, as I was thinking in my head, I think in his six uh, Roland Garros finals, I think he beat future Hall of Famers in the majority of them. I mean, so so and Victor Pecci in that. Roland Garris run happened to beat Vilas and Connors for both Hall of Famers. So I'm not going to just take this kind of like. Good
2: point, Joel. Point to you.
0: <laughs> the weaker competition angle, the weaker others. You know, it's kind of like everybody wants, everybody will acknowledge the very greats who win. And then depending on what they're advocating for, they'll go to town on the, uh, the non slam winning rivals and say, oh, well, this guy, this guy, and this guy's not in the doubt. Well, wh- whoa. Wait a second, Borg came from two sets to love down the second time he uh, he won the French Open. And I don't care who you're playing, you win us. I mean, just like Novak, beat Tsitsipas. So um, that th- then then it gets into the the comparison of the resumes of the contenders. And then it gets into the whole absolute ball striking, which is not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about watching the tape and seeing how Borg would hit the ball compared to Tsitsipas. We're talking right. about greatness in its great time. So I'm going to just kind of... Uh, I'm not gonna I'm gonna kind of not buy that abstain
2: abstain yeah and and one more thing that I that I'll leave it just in Borg's favor is that he has the record for consecutive sets one at Roland Garros that even Rafa could not uh, break and and that is 41 consecutive sets.
1: Yeah, I'm not into I'm just want to say I'm, I'm not into the comparing the competition either really because. Uh, first of all, if Borg would have lost to those guys, well, then maybe we would have regarded them as higher. Uh, you know, I don't know what we want him to do because he beat them all, right? Um, whereas Djokovic has lost a lot at, at the French to, to, to Nadal in so many of those finals um, that, that he played between um, 2012 and, and 2014, right? Uh, just to, as, as one of the stretches, right? There's, we know the history between those two. I don't know. Uh, Board can't do anything about that, right? So it, it I never like to penalize players for their competition.
2: And then, and history. then you could say that Djokovic lost to Chekanato, and you know, in, in twenty-five years, will we be saying Chekanato? You know, who's that? Um, we, you know will. we will. <laughs> we will. We <laughs> will be saying. I that. think
0: our evaluation of surfaces. I think the role starting in 2001-2002 of 32 seeds to surface homogenization, that's going to be an important thing to just understand as we look at the history of tennis. We need to see how how the game evolves. Is this pretty much what we're going to be in for for the next few decades? And we don't know and what's what's going to happen. Now, I'm starting to wonder when I think about this, if through the 80s and 90s, Roland Garros was kind of the the outlier slam, you know, the the specialization slam for the Sergio Brugueras and the Moosters. Is that becoming the U.S. Open? Because the time of year, you know, everybody starts off with an equal shot in Australia. Um, The French and Wimbledon are kind of like, there's kind of a certain kind of alignment to them now. You know, it's not that aberrational for a guy to win both.
1: Joel, it 100% is. I mean, recently, last five years, very much so, it it totally is. I mean, look at the surprise, uh, winners in the big three era del Potro uh chilich those were the big ones okay they both Ru- did it Ru- Ru- Ru-
0: yeah rawinka and then and and Medvedev you're right so it's kind of like yeah, and team like, team and team so for so for years I remember I remember putting together some information that said the French my only slam you know it's like the slam the guy won but now I'm wondering wow that's the us that seems like the u.s open for many reasons not just and and maybe not so much the surface as much as Maybe the time of year and where the players have u- deployed their bodies, or the
2: ball—the ball—that's the ball, a different ball. And and there are a lot of women, I think, that would fit into that category, including potentially Emma Raducanu. As it, you know, if you want to argue that the that the U.S. Open is maybe a, a specialty slam, that's really interesting. Hadn't thought of that.
1: What I like most, Amy, about the fact that that you went into that piece with Djokovic is that. It drew attention to the idea that from a legacy standpoint, he certainly has an opportunity to to really cement himself with the Roland Garros titles in terms of what it does for him, uh reputationally as a player, uh, because of how much success he's had on grass and hardcore when it comes to the to the slams at the very least. Uh, he really does. That that is a big opportunity. If he's able to add a couple of, of French Open titles, it, it really would do a lot, I think, for, for how, um, how he would be looked at as a complete all-surface player that he already certainly is, but it would, ser- it would just be taken to, to new heights. So,
0: Well, if your worst slam is when you win four times.
1: Hmm. That's something, right?
0: It's pretty good, but it's just interesting how the, uh, the you know, increasing data, it's just increasing data. It's not, it's not inflation, it just means – You know, it's just staggering again. I mean, this is a very rationale for our show existing is that guys who well past double digits in slam wins. It's just unbelievable.
1: Well, next time we will get together, the Roland Garros draw will be out and it will be interesting. Nadal is not a top four seed. Alcaraz is not a top four seed. So it does feel like a lot is riding on the draw potentially. And we will be there to discuss it. That'll do it for this episode of three. We're available on all podcast platforms. We really appreciate it. You leave a rating and a review on Apple. And if you're watching on YouTube, make sure to like, comment and subscribe. We'll see you next time on the next episode of three.